If you brought your Bible, you can open with me. Here it is. You can open to Matthew chapter 12. I do put the uh, verses on the screen for our ease of moving from verse to verse, but let me encourage you to always be mindful of bringing your copy of God's Word. Occasionally, we do have technical difficulties, and uh, these these things that we use can fail, and I'll just say open to, and you'll need to know how to flip through those pages of Scripture. Amen? Bible Church, that's what we try to get your nose in the book, to know the book. So, chapter 12, 22 through 36. Quick question this morning, how many of you have ever heard of the so-called unpardonable sin? Not everybody? Or maybe some of you just don't want to let me know that you know if you've heard about this, right? The unpardonable sin. Uh, We've heard most of our lives um, that there is no sin so big that God cannot forgive, right? There is no sin so big that God cannot forgive. We've heard this over and over and over. The Old Testament is a repository of just story after story of just how forgiving God truly is. We see in Micah 7, 18 through 19, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? There is no God like our God. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. This is our God. New Testament, Ephesians 1, 7, just a few examples. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And in the word of God, and in particular in the New Testament, specifically we find that God forgives any number of sins, from idolatry to murder to fornication to gluttony to adultery to lying and cheating, homosexuality, blasphemy, drunkenness. The list just goes on and on. That's just mentioning a few. He even uh, forgives the sin of rejecting Christ. When we walk around as unbelievers, we are living in a state of rejection against the truth of the knowledge of God's word whether we're cognizant of it or not, he even forgives that by grace through faith. Amen? There's no sin so big that God will not forgive. Yet, in our passage this morning, we're introduced to one sin that is so big, there's no coming back from it. Which is why, historically, it's been referred to as the unpardonable sin. Now, over the last couple of weeks, Jesus... Uh, has been in a series of confrontations with the Pharisees. It began when he started uh, with his disciples in the grain fields, and they were walking through on a Sabbath collecting grain from the ears of, 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 of grain, and, of, and they were rubbing them in their hands and consuming. They were hungry. They were satisfying their hunger. And in that, we talked about how these Pharisees and their man-made traditions um, while originally intended to help people honor and love God, they actually ended up doing the complete opposite and instead burying people under a mound of regulations and legalism. 
The Sabbath intended to bring rest and an opportunity to show compassion and actually became a burdensome and oppressive practice. Two weeks ago, the conflict again was over Christ's disciples picking heads of grain. Last week, the Pharisees, we saw they tried to catch Jesus and trap him in the healing of a man whose hand was withered on the Sabbath. And this week, Jesus, as he has done previously in showing great compassion uh, to a man who was greatly uh, broken in our message last week, we see yet again has great compassion on the likes of the, hu- of the humankind who are, in, who are greatly oppressed and stricken by Satan himself. And for his act of compassion, this time the Pharisees go too far and sin against the Spirit of God, which we'll see was their fatal and last sin from which there is no coming back. Now, I don't normally show you an outline, but let me show you an outline of what the passage looks like this morning just so that logically you can follow as we flow through this passage. The first thing we see is the setting for the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees in verses 22 and 3. The second thing in verse 24 is we see the uh, blasphemous accusation that the Pharisees level against Jesus and ultimately against the Spirit of God. And then lastly, from verses 25 all the way down through verse 37, we see three rebuttals to, the, to this accusation that they've leveled against Jesus. The first in verses 25 through 27, we see that Jesus just rejects this accusation as being absurdly illogical. Uh, their, their logic is just not sound, and he points that out very obviously. Secondly, Jesus is going to provide insight within the context of this confrontation that he's having. He uses this to provide more insight into the reality of the kingdom of God, that it is actually at hand and among these people. We see that in verses 28 and 30. And then lastly, Jesus is going to warn against the sin of this unpardonable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit there in verses 31 down through verse 37. So that's kind of a bird's eye view of where we're headed this morning because as you know, I, it's not typical for me to cover like say verses 22 all the way to a verse 37, right? That's not typical for me, so I'm going to be moving at a little bit of a quicker pace, a little bit more of a bird's eye view over some of these verses that we look at today. So in, in giving you the big picture here, this may help you out indeed. So let's get started in first. The setting, the, the confrontation that we have here with Jesus and again these Pharisees in verses 22 through 23. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowd, crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? So uh, here again we see Jesus apparently it would seem still on the Sabbath day, having already walked away from the previous confrontation after healing the man with the withered hand. Um, and it said, having last week, remember, it said he walked away and, and a crowd followed after him. And what did he do with the crowd? He said he healed them all. Jesus lingered long enough with the outcast to demonstrate what God intended for those Pharisees to understand, which was the heart of God, which was a heart of compassion. So we saw that Jesus did that. And so here in this new confrontation, notice who gets brought before Jesus. We see another very desperate man there in verse 
22. A very desperate man there in verse 22, a demon-possessed man. And it seems that his physical ailments, his blindness and his muteness was brought about as a result of his demon possession. We're not exactly certain on that, but that would seem to be the case because Jesus is going to cast the demon out of this man and then he becomes seeing and speaking again as a result of that. Perhaps it's a one and all type miracle, but nonetheless, um, the man with whom they've brought before Jesus is a man in great need. I think we might say he's another bruised reed um, who was discarded by people, a person who had no hope in his life at all. Um, and let's just take a second to think, try to take a step, if we can, in the life of Christ and in the life of these individuals that surround this man. Um, when you think of a demon-possessed man, blind, mute, there's no telling the, um, the affirmities that this man would have brought with him to the table. When you think of a man like this, are you repulsed? As were the Pharisees of Christ's day that would have had nothing to do with these people and their legal system of regulations that would have pushed a man like this as far away from God and help from God as possible. Or... When you think of a man like this, do you feel compassion? As does Jesus. As he saw lost people, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, as sheep without a shepherd. Think about the torment this man is in. Now, perhaps he had done some things in his life that invited this kind of demonic activity. Nonetheless, um, when we think about this man's condition that he was lost... He's not a saved man. He's, he's under bondage to Satan and thus sin, and his sin has led him to a place of demon possession. He's blind. He's living in total darkness. He's mute. He's unable to communicate the torment that he's living in daily. It doesn't say that he's without hearing, so possibly all he can do is actually hear all the horrible things that people are saying about him as they pass him by. He's possessed, his body, his mind, his spirit, tormented night and day. I think he's the epitome of the analogy Matthew used in our text last week. If ever there was a battered reed or a smoldering wick, it was a man like this. Discarded by men, it's this man right here. And as it says here at the end of verse 22, notice verse 22, the very end, and... Jesus healed him. Isn't that a beautiful passage? We fail to connect with a passage like this analogously because we sometimes fail to remember where we were at when we were lost in the pit of sin under the domain of darkness and in a, in a, in a dominion of sin. That we were, we were blind to spiritual truth. We were mute, unable to speak truths of the Lord. Um, in essence, we might not say we were demon-possessed. I know when I was a lost person, I never said that I was doing the bidding of Satan. But whenever you look at the word of God, there's two kingdoms. God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. And either, either God's your father or Satan is. That's the biblical worldview under which we live. 
And though I would have never said I was possessed by Satan in that regard, in a spiritual sense, we are very much like this man right here who's brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed this man so that the man spoke and saw. And again, in the spiritual sense, if we can connect ourselves in that way and realize the grace of God as when he found us, maybe it would soften our hearts to be more godlike and have hearts of compassion when we in our culture see people that are broken, like this demon-possessed man was broken, who are blind spiritually, who are mute spiritually, all we can see is that they are under the domain of darkness and they speak that way and they see life that way and thus they live that way. Let's not be like the Pharisees of the day gone by, the religious people who look down on those people and discard them as bruised reeds and smoldering wicks that we want to have nothing to do with. Let's instead be like Christ our Lord who had heart of a compassion and moved himself intentionally and purposefully into their path, into this man's path, and healed him. Now, we can't do that, but we can bring him words of life. Amen? We can, we can bring broken people like this, whether in body or spirit or both, we can only bring them words of life if we're so inclined to be like Christ. And it's fair to say that this individual to whom Jesus was brought and it says, and he healed him, see this right here? It's fair to say that this man was instantaneously healed of all his afflictions. Demon gone, eyes can see, mouth can speak instantaneously. And I'm tempted to say something about the quality of this healing, as I did when Jesus completely healed the leprous man of Matthew chapter 8. But I'm not going to at this time. I'm also tempted to say that what people call healings today seem nothing like what we see Jesus doing in his ministry but I'm not going to go there today. There might be another day for that. And I'm also tempted to say that miracles in the Bible are not normative. Even within the Word of God, miracles are not normative. If you understand the flow of history from Genesis to Revelation, you see that there's only three main periods in, this, in the entirety of the Word of God where miracles were more normative. Three times, that's it. That's not to say that there aren't miracles somewhere along the way spread out within that, but it's not normative. It wasn't normative then, nor are they to be thought of as normative today, but I'm not going to go there. I'll save all that for a different day. But there's no question that what people have been seeing Jesus do as he has healed countless hundreds, yea, thousands and how he has completely restored their lives and restored them for the good. He restored them for, he made them whole. It wasn't a partial healing. It wasn't just a, it was, an, it was a complete instantaneous healing. He made them good. We see here that this once demon-possessed, blind, mute man is now completely restored in his right mind, being able now to speak and see. And that at the hand of this man who just claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. It's no wonder we see in verse 23 that there were many of those in the crowds that day talking among themselves, thinking that just perhaps this Jesus 
could indeed be the son of David. Notice 23 again. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David. Can he? This verse lets us see perhaps for the first time how the crowd is starting to take a serious look at Jesus as being their long-awaited Messiah. They were amazed. This word amazed is to cause someone to be so astounded as to be practically overwhelmed. The crowds have been watching Jesus for multitudes of months now, healing almost everybody that came to him instantaneously and completely. And for the first time, Matthew gives us an insight for the first time that the amazement of what Jesus was doing in his works was at a point of causing this, these Jewish audiences to be so astounded. And perhaps it's because of the compassion that Jesus was showing on the likes of a man like this, whom nobody else wanted to touch or have anything to do with. They're starting to perhaps think that this is indeed their long-awaited Messiah. And it's at this point that the Pharisees become obviously concerned to the point that they felt the need to interject a swift and severe rebuke against those in the crowd asking such questions. Which leads to our second point, which deals with the blasphemous accusations of the Pharisees in verse 24. I probably did that too fast, sorry the blasphemous accusations of the Pharisees in verse 24. So after they had the confrontation and the crowd started saying, perhaps this is the son of David. Perhaps this is our long-awaited Messiah. The Pharisees interject in verse 24. When, they, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. They felt a need to have a very sharp and distinct contrast voice from what they were saying amongst them, themselves to turn their thinking away from that possibility. And they respond with slandering Jesus with the charge of working with the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And in Loanida, the Greek New Testament lexicon, Beelzebub is the name of the devil as the prince of the demons. So in essence, what they're saying is that this man, Jesus, he casts out demons by the authority of Satan. He's in cahoots with the ruler of the demons, Satan himself, the devil. So no sooner the Jewish crowd begin to think that perhaps Jesus is truly the son of David, these blind guides immediately step in to lead them away from truth. Put another way, these Pharisees are now viewing Jesus not as the promised Messiah, the son of David, but as demonic and as being in cahoots with Satan himself. Which leads to the third point that we briefly saw. The third point where Jesus has a three-point rebuttal to this blasphemous accusation that he is in cahoots and working with the devil. The first, he rejects the accusation as being absurdly illogical. Secondly, he's going to give some more insight with regard to the kingdom of God and the, the, the reality that what he is doing is proof that the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And then lastly, he's going to warn against the sin that's an unpardonable sin, which is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit there in verse 31 down through verse 37. Let's look at the first rejection, verses 25 down through verse 27. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. You see how Jesus is just using some very basic logic with these Pharisees. How then will his kingdom stand? If Satan cast himself out, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If every time your favorite, you're watching your favorite football game, and every time your favorite quarterback on your favorite football team takes the snap from the center and he turns around and, you, and he, you're going this way and he just takes a snap and he turns around and he just throws it this direction as an incomplete pass, how are you ever going to win the game? You're working against yourself. You're perpetually shooting yourself in the foot. Jesus, that's why he's just using some basic logic. If Satan's casting himself out, he's divided against himself. How can this work? No kingdom or house could stand under that kind of condition. It doesn't work. And if by Beelzebub I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. So with this very simple logic, Jesus disproves this outlandish accusation of the Pharisees. And we see here in verse 26 that his question, we see he has a question. This question is in the form of a, of a rhetorical question, meaning that the answer is clearly implied and understood and so the implied and clearly understood answer to the this uh, rhetorical question that Jesus asks here in verse 26 is that it can't right I don't think anybody's going to read this and go well no it could of course it could if you're fighting against yourself all the time and you're casting yourself out you're going to be successful no everybody's going to look at this and say absolutely there's no way that could happen so even by the questioning itself Jesus has set them up for complete failure. And then he basically says to themselves of some of their own sons, in other words, there was some exorcism that was going on within Judaism. And he says, amongst those who are doing exorcism amongst your Jewish sons, your brothers, among them, who do they cast out the demons they claim to be casting out? What's the source or authority by which they do it? Are you being consistent, Pharisees? Would you look at your, these brothers of yours who, in Judaism who, are, who, who you tend to be favorable towards? Are you saying the same thing about them that you're saying about me? They, in essence, will be your judges. They, the work that they're doing and your response to them and how it's incongruent with the work that I'm doing and how you speak out of both sides of your mouth, that will be a, judge, a judgment against yourselves. They will be your judges. You don't really believe this, you believe that, you just don't like Christ, me, and his message. So they, for this reason, they will be your judges. Absurdly illogical. But have you noticed, even within our culture today, those kind of likened unto the Pharisees, meaning that they just don't like Christ and his gospel? Have you noticed how a lot of times the arguments that they try to 
raise up against the knowledge of God are absurdly illogical. And it's blatantly clear that they are like this demon-possessed man. They're blind to spiritual truth. And they speak from a place of spiritual darkness. And the logic that they use to try to spew their animus against Christ is so illogical that whenever you try to use just reason and logic, apologetics, if you will, to try to convince them, they scoff at you. Has anybody ever noticed this? I think it's what we've said on multiple occasions. There's nothing new under the sun, right? I mean, people are just people. People then are like people today. The sin nature then is like the sin nature today. There's nothing new under the sun. Sin was sin then as sin is sin today. Nothing new under the sun. And so what do you do? What do you do? Here's what you do. I was about to get an answer from my brother right here. What do, you, what do you do? Bingo. You share truth and love. In other words, you do what the Apostle Paul told them to do in the book of Corinthians. You plant and or you water. Amen? You keep planting and you keep watering. Can you cause the growth? Absolutely not. You plant and you water and you just, and eventually you might have to do this. Wipe the dust off that boot and move on to the next town, to the next city, and keep sharing the gospel of Christ. Have you ever noticed that God's not saving every single person you share the gospel with immediately? Don't let that bring discouragement, because somebody may come up behind you, somebody who was at the previous town or village, shook the dust off their feet there as you shook yours off here and you kept moving, and then they came into the village that you just left, or town you just left, or the city in which you live, or your neighbor, or whoever it is you work with, and they may have the opportunity to, to plant the seed again. And then God may cause the growth. And in that, we all rejoice together. Whether we know about it here or we find about it later in heaven, listen, just keep planting the seeds and watering the seeds of the gospel. Secondly, Jesus provides insight into the reality of the kingdom of heaven being at hand, verses 28 through 30. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And I think Jesus is saying this in the sense where this if is more like a sense. But since I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And without question, Jesus knows that he is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and he knows factually that the kingdom of God has come upon them. And then he gives them a little illustration, or how, in verse 29, or how can... Anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then plunders his house. He who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Now, just by application for us today, verse 30 is a little bit chilling, is it not? I mean, he's speaking to the Pharisees here, but this is a truism then, and it's still true to this day. Anybody who's not with Christ... He who is not with me is what? Against me. You may think, well, I, I'm not against Christ. Listen, but if you're, not, if you're not with him, well, what does it mean to be with him? Well, that becomes a pretty big question. What does it mean to be with Christ? Well, to be with Christ seems in this context that Jesus would be inferring that if you're with me, 
you're with me. We're in this together. We have a koinonia in the gospel. We have a common faith. You've, you've recognized me as the Lord. That's Jesus, not me. Jesus. You've recognized Jesus as Lord, and you're with him. And so if you're with me, you're with me, but if you're not, you're against me. There's no neutral ground with Jesus. There's really not a good place for closet Christianity in light of Christ's strong teachings in the gospel. It's kind of hard to be with him if you're in the closet. It's kind of hard to be with him if you're afraid to speak for him when you've been given an opportunity and put in a place in life, a place where you're intended to speak and be a witness and to have a testimony, but if you don't do that because, well, I just don't want to offend anybody and I just want to be nice to people. and Well, if you're not with him, you're against him, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And these Pharisees, they were not gathering with him, gathering in the sense of like Jesus said to his disciples back in Matthew chapter 4, follow me, I will make you become fishers of men. You will be a gatherer with me. You will become a fisher of men with me. You will be a gatherer of lost souls through the preaching of this gospel of the kingdom that he and his apostles, disciples have been preaching. He who does not gather with me scatters, and these blind guides, these Pharisees, who claimed to be spokesmen for God, were scatterers. They were not gatherers of the souls of lost men for the purpose of building the kingdom and, and Christ's kingdom as he came. They are scatterers in that they are blind guides, and in all their man-made traditions, all they've done is lead people further and further away from the the true knowledge of God, and thus the coming of his son, Jesus Christ. And had they just simply realized their illogical argumentation, Satan does not cast himself out, and they realize that Jesus is doing this by the Spirit of God, they would have come to realize the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to do all these miraculous things, they would have understood rightly that the kingdom of God had come upon them. And how he is able to do this is that he is in the process through the proclamation and the spreading of the gospel, he is in the process of rendering the strong man, Satan, who holds all people blind and under the dark domain of darkness, he is in the process of the proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel through the church age. He is in the process of he has entered into the strong man's house and he's going to carry off his property. What's his property? People who are in his kingdom of darkness. People who are children of Satan. Christ has come with the gospel to, to bind a strong man and to plunder his house and to take away property of his people. For God and God's kingdom. Had they just simply recognized his works and how they validated his words, they would realize that they could be with him and that they could be gatherers and not scatterers. But they find themselves in a place where they are not with him and they are scattering the people of God away from the truth that the kingdom of God is upon them. So when what? So as Jesus has healed this man, what just happened? Those in the crowd start saying, perhaps this is the son of David. Inserts the Pharisees, nonsense. 
that man does what he does because he's in cohorts with Satan himself, and he does what he does with the power of Satan. Leads to our next point. Jesus warns against the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Verse 31. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. It's, it's right here where Jesus tells the Pharisees that their slanderous accusation that they leveled against him is a, an unforgivable sin. Any sin and every blasphemy, save one, can be forgiven. Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but one. A blasphemy against the Spirit of God shall be unforgivable. Their slander of the Spirit's ministry in and through Jesus as instead being accomplished by the power and influence of the ruler of the demons, Satan himself, was blasphemy against the Spirit of God and was the unforgivable sin. Now, in, in one way, all readers of Matthew's gospel would do well to take these solemn words with the utmost of seriousness. Amen? So the question then becomes that we are all interested is, is can this sin still be committed today? It's a good question, right? And I've read on, a, on this topic here, and I've seen people answer going in both directions. No, it cannot happen today. It's contextualized, and some saying things like, well, the text doesn't say that the Pharisees of Matthew 12, 31 were the only Pharisees or people who could commit this sin. The text doesn't say that this is a one-off situation that could never be reduplicated somewhere else if Jesus then left this place and went to another place and was healing somebody and a different group of Pharisees came up and did the same thing. Well, well, that was only rele relegated to the Pharisees back in the other city or town that, that, that they committed an unpardonable sin. The text never indicates that it's a one-off situation like this that of attributing the work of the Holy Spirit as evidenced in the words and works of Jesus Christ as being the very work of Satan himself. However, it seems to me that there is a contextualization of this concept that needs to be couched in the life and times of Jesus Christ. In other words, it would seem reasonable to me to think that this sin could have been a sin that a, any multitude of Pharisees and or other people, if they were so to speak against the Holy Spirit in this way and attribute what they saw Jesus doing to being done by the power of Satan, that that would be an unpardonable sin over which there is no forgiveness and their fate, their doom, if you will, is sealed on the day of judgment. That that could happen in a multitude of places that Jesus would go and as he's doing his healings, any Pharisee or person could say the same thing against the works that he's doing and be guilty of this sin. So the question becomes, okay, well, after his death, burial, and resurrection, how about today? Is it possible today if, if an unbeliever were to read the scriptures, the word of God, and say, 
I agree with the Pharisees. I think that I, I do not believe that Jesus was God. I think this entire book is a hoax. And if Jesus were, was alive and was actually doing these things, I would say that he's doing it with the power of Satan too. Could a person today take an approach like that by looking back at the scriptures and seeing that and saying that and truly mean it, could they be committing an unpardonable sin? I heard at least one yes. Saw several head shakes. It's a little chilling in the air, isn't it? It would seem to me that anybody who attributes the words and works of Christ to demonic power and equates Jesus as being in cohorts, in collusion with Satan himself, and that's how he did what he did, and they mean that at a heart level and attribute the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, it would seem to me that they've committed the unpardonable sin from which there's no coming back. Now, you may say, well, that just doesn't seem fair of God. Well, what if they change their mind afterwards, right? There's always that person. Well, yeah, they said that, but this Pharisee, a week later, he, he decided he wanted to change his mind. I don't think that anymore. Now I think this. Is that okay? Does, will God say, that's okay, I got you. I see that, and, and I'll go ahead and forgive that unpardonable sin. Or is it a sin that you have to cling to and hold on to vehemently throughout the course of your life all the way to the grave? You take that one to the grave with you and you never recant of that sin. Are you following me? Can a person recant of such a statement as what these Pharisees were doing and then God grant them forgiveness? Because they cry out for mercy and they realize that they have wrongly in their blindness they've wrongly seen and how would they see though that this is now true the only way they could see spiritual light is if God opens their blind eyes and Jesus has a healing on them as he did the on this demon possessed man and then gave them eyes to see and a mouth to speak because if you see with the eyes to see that Jesus is who he claimed to be and a mouth to speak the wonders and the glories of God, you would know for certain that this man has made, been made well and been healed of the sin of unbelief and of the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So this passage really puts us in a very unique place. And unfortunately for me, I read so many different commentaries on this and I got so many different views. It, it didn't really help bring a lot of clarity to it. And so I'm sharing with you some of my unclarity on knowing exactly the right perspective on this passage. But let me give you this warning. Never, ever attribute the work of, and words of Jesus Christ as being the done by the power of Satan. And you can never be considered guilty of an unpardonable sin, ever. It's that simple. If you haven't done it, don't do it. If you think you've done it, I remember at one point in my life, I thought that I had committed the unpardonable sin. You know why? I, I, I did. I thought that I was unsavable. I got saved, and I went to a church. And in that denomination, they believe certain things a little bit differently than I believe now. And they said that if I wanted to demonstrate, or if anybody wanted to demonstrate, 
that they were a child of God, all they need do is, is come to the altar, request the second baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues, and then that would be evidence that you were a child of God. So I did that. I just got saved. I did that for eight months. Week after week after week after week after week after week after for eight months, I went forward. And I laid on, this, on these stairs. They had more stairs than this that came. I was laid out on these stairs. My battery just died. That means you need to really listen up. Somebody just somebody killed my voice here. David, you got me? My battery shows to be good. Y'all can still hear me, right? Okay. So I go up for eight months. And it never happens. And while I'm up there on the last, the last Sunday I went up, the youth pastor was one of the guys that was around me. And he says to me, he gets right into my ear and he says to me, you're preventing this. Help it out. Start with some vowels and roll in some consonants. Just let it flow. And then like for the first time in, in my life, I think I heard what people refer to as that still small voice. And what I heard in my head was, that's not true. And man, I broke out in a sweat. And I got up from that place, and I went back to my chair, and I never went up again. And it led me to be convinced that I must have committed the unpardonable sin at some place in my life as evidenced that God didn't love me enough to make that happen for me. And it led me to a place of despair and even depression for probably the next year to year and a half. I wanted to be saved, but I couldn't. And so this doctrine of the unpardonable sin, you, I'm giving you this example for me to let you realize that it, it, can, it can inflict people in our culture today. It inflicted me greatly. And by God's grace, I started doing some reading. I started talking, praying, investigating. I spent the next two years investigating this issue as broadly as I could and then came to the under, started moving in a direction of the understanding that I have now with regard to that issue. And then I realized that, no, I'm not um, an unpardonable person. That I do have the Spirit of God alive in me, and I'm, one of his, and I'm one of God's children. And I got set free from bad doctrine. Bad doctrine can, can really lead you into a place of despair. See also the Pharisees and their Talmuds and all their rules and regulations and their interpretation on Torah that led the people of Israel into legalism. Bad doctrine can negatively impact your life for good. And in verse 32, notice how seriously Jesus reiterates this. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Now think about that. You, you want to speak against Jesus himself? He says, do it. That can be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. You would almost think that if you spoke against Jesus and said all kinds of hateful words against Jesus, that that might be unforgivable, but not so. Every sin, every blasphemy 
can be forgiven save one. You say that what Jesus did in his words and works were done by the power of Satan. That's an unforgivable, unpardonable sin. And then from verse 33 to 37, Jesus uses a metaphor of trees and its fruit for the purpose of showing these Pharisees and others who dare sin in like manner as they had done, how with their own words have shown their hearts to be evil and have sealed their doom. Look at verse 33. He said, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. In this metaphor, Jesus is telling these Pharisees that they, like all people, must determine what they believe to be true of Jesus. Is he a good tree doing good deeds from God or is he a bad tree doing his works from the devil? The tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says that if any of these Pharisees or anyone would look at his words and his works with an integrity of heart, they would see that the works that he were doing was good, that it was good fruit, and indeed that he was doing the very works of God. And in verse 34, Jesus lets them know that these Pharisees just flat missed this point. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure, what is evil. And through their false accusation, Jesus has revealed that what was in their hearts was indeed evil. And this, by the way, of uh, this, this true, truism here is, is a truth that we know applies all the way down to our lives today. There, we see this right here for um, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. In other words, if you want to know the most honest reflection of what a man treasures, if you want to know the most honest reflection of what a man treasures in his life, all you need to know and do is listen to his words. Words from the lips belie, not belie, confirm truth that's in the heart. Actions can belie it. Words never will. And in the case of these Pharisees, their word, obviously their heart, confirmed that they do not love Jesus. As a matter of fact, they despised him and conspired together with the Herodians on how they might kill him. And we could speak probably longer on this portion here, on these verses, about the man that brings out of his good treasure what is good. We could slow down if we had a few more minutes and kind of highlight this aspect of treasure. And just ask ourselves, is Christ truly the treasure of our heart? Do our words reflect that Christ truly is the treasure of our heart? Remember, he said, if you're not with me, you're against me. What's it mean to be with him? It means that you treasure what he treasures. You treasure him. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. What do we treasure in our hearts? Because that which fills the heart is that which we treasure. But an unbelieving, an evil person brings out of their treasure, their heart, what is evil. It's that simple. 
And the word of God in this case is like a mirror into which we look. And so each person this morning and any person that looks and reads the word of God and sees this can be judged by their own hearts. What you treasure is what you love. What you love is what you speak. What you speak will be what you do. It's just a fact of life. People do what they love. People do what they love. And then in verses 36 and 7 and finishing this, this section up, Notice how Jesus says that the words that you speak, because they're the treasure within your heart, on that last day, those words will come up again, and they will be a judge against you. Notice, but I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words, and by the way, careless words, how careless were the words of the Pharisees to attribute the works of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was doing to Satan. How careless was that? It was utterly careless. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Listen, salvation and condemnation are not produced by words or deeds. It's by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But words will indeed manifest them. That's a fact. Words... And deeds are objective, observable evidence of a person's true spiritual condition. And so Jesus can say that in the day of judgment, one's words will either betray a person as to not truly belonging to God with him, gathering, or they will confirm that that person truly does not belong to God against him and scattering. There's no place for neutrality with Christ. He wants all of you because he's given you all of him. Amen? He gave you all of the Holy Spirit when you get, got saved. He didn't give you a partial portion. He gave you every bit of the Holy Spirit. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is yours. We're with him or we're not. And in the case of these Pharisees, their words will be that which condemns them in the day of judgment. So brothers and sisters, let's use our words to demonstrate to this onlooking world and culture in which we live, this decaying world and culture in which we live, let's use our words as empirical data, 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 to prove that we have been justified by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? If you're here this morning and you've yet to make Christ your Lord, would you do that today? A day of judgment is coming. It's inevitable, it's coming. If you have not put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, the words that you speak will be used against you and bring condemnation because it will be on that last day, however that gets revealed. I haven't been there yet, but however it gets revealed, your words will confirm that your heart never truly belonged to Jesus. Do that today. Today is the day of salvation.